A new contract awarded to Disc Seal Technologies by the Veterans Affairs Department tasks the company with training physicians to perform a new non-surgical spine procedure to all Department of Defense and VA hospitals in the United States and overseas. I wanted to hear more about what is called the Disc Seal procedure, so I spoke to its creator, Dr. Kevin Pauza, who is also Chief Medical Advisor and Director of Disc Seal Technologies. Even more recently, uh, we've been learning that the veterans across America have this crisis with opioid addiction, and it's directly tied into suicide rate, and, and that was disconcerting to me. And then I recognized that these uh, veterans, uh, and, and it's not just veterans, uh, but across the United States, uh, are um, uh, often addicted to opioids, uh, no fault of their own, but they were prescribed them after having spine surgeries. And um, the failure rate for spine surgery is relatively high, and that causes uh, people to then be on uh, opioids because there's very few ways to manage it. So anyway, uh, that was the problem. I recognized that uh, you know there was a problem in surgery, and my focus early on at the University of Pennsylvania was treating failed spine surgery. So that's all I saw were people who had failed prior surgeries, and then I recognized that. The whole paradigm was wrong, that the majority of surgeries were unnecessary, and uh, there was this industry of uh, medical fusion fueling it. And so uh, many of this, the, the spine surgeons um, knew that we needed changes, but many of them didn't welcome my changes because um, I recognized, no, instead of, um, you know, putting bolts and hardware uh, and rods and screws into spines, uh, it would be better to just allow the discs to regrow. Um, and so, you know, for for decades, I've been working on a way to uh, cause the discs to grow. And, and the answer was, was almost too simple. Veterans especially have a very high instance of uh, chronic low back pain or neck pain, very high instance. And it's probably a lot to do with what they do, uh, what they've done. All right. So the main question, I guess, is how does the disc seal procedure work? With this treatment, um, what we simply do is we recognize that uh, the discs are usually the cause of low back pain. The discs are the cushions in our back. If it's torn, that'll cause it to bulge or herniate or degenerate. Uh, that's the terms they use. But that's the problem. It's a torn disc. All disc problems, all disc pathology is directly caused by torn discs. No exception. And so uh, we needed a way to heal the discs. And so a way that just made, uh, made sense was the same way our body heals our skin. So when we take a knife to our skin and it's cut, it heals. Uh, it heals because our body sends something called fibrin to the cut. And that heals the cut. And so anyway, having said that, uh, there's an FDA-approved drug called fibrin. Fibrin is what causes everyone's injuries to heal, skin to heal. Or if we uh, injure our spleen, we put fibrin on the spleen and it causes spleen to heal. And even years ago when they did facial reconstruction, they used sutures. Uh, and now we could use fibrin. We put it on the face and we don't need sutures. That's all the procedure is. The procedure is called the disc seal procedure. And even though it does seal the discs, uh, to me, the more important part is that the disc seal procedure causes the growth of new disc tissue. There's you know, many <laughs> spine industry people that are you know, constantly attacking this. 
but you know, there's luckily though there's hope because there's uh, some very fine spine surgeons who who recognize the need for the disc seal procedure, and so you know, one of those was uh, the, the VA and Department of Defense. Yeah, I wanted to jump in here and find out how how did they come to learn about this procedure, or did you go to them, or did they come to you? Uh, just give me a, a back backdrop on what what went down there. Yeah. Basically, I don't know how the relationship started with the VA and Department of Defense, except for the fact that I know that I've treated many veterans, and they've been paying out of pocket for the procedure over the years. And somehow, veterans that must have reached out to congressmen or people in the VA or Department of Defense to say, hey, you know, you guys uh, need to know about this because you're you're telling my friends to have fusions. And, 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 And so anyway... It's 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 that grassroots campaign that started from veterans who I do not know that brought this into the VA and Department of Defense attention. And they reached out to us hmm. asking if it was something that we could scale and make available to them. And so um, I was, you know, very, um, you know, focused on my practice, but I felt there was a, a much bigger need. And if this could be made available uh, to, you know, who I thought deserved it more than anybody else, that would be the VA and Department of Defense. Uh, then I would, you know, put everything aside and focus on the VA and Department of Defense. And so, yeah, so they, um, you know, they signed an agreement uh, that al- allows me to, uh, to train all of their physicians and nursing staff. In addition, it uh, pays for the procedure in full uh, for uh, any any veteran or uh, active or non-active uh, member of the Department of Defense. So, uh, so th- it, it that had to let you know that you were definitely on to something, despite all the pushback you got from uh, the spinal surgery industry. Uh, that let you know that, oh, well, if <laughs> if these folks are into it, and then I got to be on to something, right? It was a really good feeling, and it, it actually it, it actually turned it changed my mind about the <laughs> the VA and Department of Defense uh, <laughs> because it caused me to recognize that they truly do want something that's better than is being offered out there uh, because um, they're actually ahead of the game when it comes to this uh, because only now other insurance companies are approaching me but. Uh, the VA and Department of Defense, you know, kind of took the lead, if you will, and uh, and recognized the technology and and recognized the data, reviewed it all, um, <clears throat> even long before it was uh, made public to anybody out there. So uh, that really uh, it caused me to uh, you know to respect uh, whatever's happening in the VA and Department of Defense at at, at a high level. Um, more so than um, than most people give it credit, uh, you know, in my experience. Then let's uh, let's not lose focus of who this actually helps, which is the patients themselves. What if what do you hear from them? Are they you know, I, I imagine they're not virtually pain free just because spines are so finicky. But, you know, are, are they saying that it's a lot better than the alternative? Well, yeah, real good question. So it's among one of the largest uh, spine the studies that's been done with a, a registry. So in other words, I, so I thought, okay, let me teach other doctors. So I taught a small group of doctors, and yes, they could duplicate the results. And then I said, well, let's see what the results are. And, and so, yeah, the patients are happy. And so we've been following uh, over 700 patients. We're now at over uh, five years, uh, but we've had no adverse events. No complications. There's no spine surgeon 
in the United States who can make that equal statement. Uh, and the data was all collected independently. Because this was so uh, so important uh, and it would be looked at with scrutiny, I felt, as it deserved to be, I had the data collected by the actual registry that's endorsed by the surgeons because I thought they'd be my strongest critics. So it's a, a registry that's supported and endorsed uh, by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery that collects all my data, not me. I'm blinded to my data. I couldn't even access it. But anyway, they looked at everything considered important to a patient. That means that even dis- depression, mental health, disability, function, pain, uh, looked at the eight things uh, and demonstrated what we call statistically significant improvement in everything they looked at at one year. And then I thought, well, after one year, it's going to fall off as everything else does. But at two years, the outcomes were even better than one year. And at three years, they were better than two years. And that's probably reflective of the fibrin's ability to heal the disc over time. And that's the opposite of what surgery does, because we know that over time, surgery, because it does something unnatural to the spine, worsens the adjacent segments. It's just just the nature of surgery. They can't help it. It just does that. And this does the opposite. And even have a fair amount of patients come in proactively. A lot of them are pro athletes and others who recognize the, you know, the value of being proactive and they have their spines uh, treated uh, you know with the procedure and um, I, I treat several royal families overseas and uh, one of them had me treat uh, all the members proactively because they were uh, plagued with spine pain and spine surgery over the decades prior and um, for all those that I treated none of them have needed spine surgery you know after following them for over seven years so it's um, it's a whole different paradigm. That, you know, the disc cell procedure uh, is focused on quickly identifying the tears, and we do that at the same time. So the patients come in, they don't get put to sleep, but they're a twilight sedation. It's called conscious sedation, and then uh, we perform the procedure. That's where we uh, easily um, we direct some very small needles into the bottom discs identify the tears, and then we immediately seal all those tears with fibrin. And then the patients go to recovery, and that takes less than an hour to do. Um, And then in recovery for 30 minutes, and then the patients go home. And then I want them to start exercise the following day. Dr. Kevin Pauza is Chief Medical Advisor and Director of Diskill Technologies. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.